1: And we start with Ukraine and the latest on the Russian war in Ukraine. And you may or may not have heard, Jens Stoltenberg, the UN Secretary General, is actually saying that the G7 that starts today might actually have more immediate impact on the state of things in Ukraine as world leaders discuss how to further sanction Russia, try to force that country to consider its unprovoked war on Ukraine. And for many of us in the West, I don't know about you, but these the horrors of war we have witnessed there, and the daily images of massive destruction. I don't know. I I, I want to say that it has not normalized, but for whatever reason, you know, I do check in on a Ukrainian. President Volodymyr Zelensky every day. I mean, I just watched on his Instagram how oh, Sean Penn's there today. You see him speaking uh, to to groups and and countries around the world, begging for more help, more weaponry, more more firepower, if you will, and and wanting to to hurry the process of joining NATO. Certainly, Putin's plan of of weakening NATO and and sort of f- uh, fracturing the West has not been what has happened here. But have we become someone numb to it all? I mean. It certainly was the top headline when this all began in that fateful day, late February, but, but here we are hundreds of days in, and in fact, months in to Russia's war on Ukraine. And, and, and we feel helpless. I feel helpless, certainly doing what we can Slava Ukraini, uh, Slava trying to put the money where it can be helpful, but it's not that we don't, Care about the lives of our brothers and sisters that are trapped in in Russian uh, President Putin's nightmare. It's it's just we're feeling at a loss. We're certainly feeling it with inflation and and gas prices and and the concerns over over the grain that can't come out of the breadbasket of Ukraine. Uh, you know, talking about people perhaps starving in Russia because of those uh, the the the, uh, the foodstuffs that would typically feed you know a continent of people. There's much to get to here. Here's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at G7 on Ukraine. Have a listen.
2: To continue supporting Ukraine, Canada will provide a loan of $200 million to the Ukrainian government to help meet its urgent liquidity needs. We'll also invest over $150 million in new humanitarian development and peace security support. This will include agricultural solutions like grain storage units. In Canada... Our farmers typically face big challenges and have been proven to be inventive and creative, so we'll bring this expertise to Ukraine to help as much as we can. On Sunday, for the first time in three weeks, Russian missiles hit Kviv again. And yesterday, a Russian missile hit a shopping mall in Kremenchuk. We condemn these attacks and our hearts go out to the victims and their loved ones. It's important that the world doesn't lose its attention and focus over what's happening in Ukraine.
1: Indeed, and that is why we start on this subject here and now on The Mike Smith Show. I want to bring in a friend of the program, Richard Shamuka, a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, joining me now. Richard, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Jody. Let's get to uh, what the Prime Minister was just referencing there, the, the targeting of a shopping mall. Um, would that be considered a war crime? What are we what are, What are we witnessing in in Ukraine? That's just a small example of some of the horrors we've seen just in the last few days.
3: It's tough to say without more information. Uh, there's, to define something as a war crime, you basically need to show that there was intent, you know, to uh, to attack a civilian target, or that there was indiscriminate in, uh, use of weapons that would have they would have knowingly had to have. You know, create a uh, create a uh, create a war crime. So it's tough to say. Uh, but in general, I'll say this: the way that the Russian military has conducted itself uh, in any conflict, especially the air force, they've done this sort of attacks quite frequently. Saw this in Syria, uh, where they're just basically carpet bombing civilian areas, uh, and they use that because it's part of a sort of a terror tactic. So you know, without knowing no, without knowing particulars. I can't say, but certainly this is par for the course for the Russian military.
1: So can you take us on a bit of a journey, Richard, that tells us maybe what the end game here is for Putin? I know we none of us have a crystal ball, but it felt like, you know, the Russians first went in. When we first talked, I mean, we've talked a couple of times now. I'm grateful for your time and your learned perspective on this. But early days, it felt like, oh, here they go. Russia's going to come in and sweep through Ukraine and take hold of it and then not really... Uh, expecting the the pushback and the 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 character and the motivation of the Ukrainian people, uh, and literally citizens and civilians standing up for uh, some semblance of freedom in that country, and 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 the war of of back and forth and the pullback and the the swing around, and then this sort of this escalation in Kiev that we've we've seen just in the last few days. This could really go on and on and on and on and on. What what have you seen tactically in this war? So definitely at the
3: start, uh, Putin had the intent to basically put in a puppet government within, if not most of Ukraine, uh, as a large component of it. Kyiv and and uh, and uh, Kherson and uh, Kharkiv, the major uh, cities, uh, and Odessa and the south, but. Since the first part of the war, where uh, we saw the Russians, as you say, be pushed back significantly, he's really, or the Russian military has really focused its efforts on, uh, on the east, which are these two provinces that they have controlled uh, large parts of. They've set up a puppet government in both, uh, and, and now are trying to focus their efforts basically to salvage something out of this because it's pretty clear that the Russians are not going to be able to take over the rest of the country at this stage anymore. That what they can sustain is enough to try to push slowly and using massive amounts of artillery and conventional weapons in order to, uh, in order to kind of push back the ferocious Ukrainian response or counterattack. And so in towns, in the city of Sevier Donetsk, which is probably the flashpoint for last month here, there's been a pitch battle to sort of try to take the last remaining large city in one of these two provinces. And then we it's unclear exactly where it's going to go from here, but certainly this would be what he could uh, point to as an achievement. The problem is that there's some indication that the Russian government is maybe nearing the end of its logistical uh, footprint. That this, it's, it's starting to run out of artillery shells and a lot of the basic combat materials that needs to sustain this war because the battles in the East have been so ferocious and the, some of the uh, Western sanctions have been effective at curtailing their ability to produce more arms and uh, machinery in order to sustain this com- uh, this combat.
1: Can you get a little deeper into the sanctions? You know, I, I'm certainly no expert on this, but reading as much as I can, and and Russia possibly defaulting on a massive loan that could really rock their economy, right? Yeah, so
3: there's two parts of this. Uh, one part, which is probably not very helpful from the West, is that major Western countries and other countries, non-line countries like India and uh, China, continue to buy Russian energy, uh, of oil and gas. And there was a report a couple weeks ago that basically Russia is obtaining about $1 billion per day uh, from uh, exporting its energy across the world, uh, and this last as uh, you sort of teed up on this was the g seven is trying to trying to curtail the effectiveness of those uh, of those exports. The other side of it is the very large export uh, sorry sanctions that cover a whole range of goods, whether it be um, uh, advanced like just getting computers is is going to be very difficult or it is difficult now uh basic kind of uh, goods and uh, service that would be utilized for the military and also excluding the Russian econo- or financial system from Western uh, from the Western economic system writ large. That has been extremely effective and that's one of the reasons why they've. we think it's not, it hasn't been fully confirmed yet that they've actually defaulted their debt for the first time since uh, 1918. And that kind of shows just how crippling some of the sanctions are. So it's a bit of a big, big Bit of a mixed bag, but certainly Mm -hmm. uh, it has been very effective at uh, crimping large, uh, significant portions of the Russian economy. And it's only going to get worse because as they're unable to obtain some basic necessities, that's going to affect large parts of the economy. There's going to be widespread effects. That will take take months to kind of work through, but they are going to be crippling.
1: What about fatigue here in the West? People who are feeling the strain and stress certainly first world problems in the most literal of senses but uh, you know because our homes are not being bombed uh our society is not being attacked the way that it is in Ukraine however it is certainly what is causing the root cause of why gas prices are where they are which is triggering inflation which is having you know a widespread impact on particularly people who were you know just barely making it after coming through covid 19. How does that fatigue here in the West uh, impact how this is all consumed and, and, and the supports? I mean, hearing Prime Minister Trudeau saying we're going to put forward a $200 million loan and then $150 million in support uh, for Ukraine, the announcement at the G7.
3: Yeah, no, and I think that's a pretty serious point And it's it's tough to say. I, I don't think there's people drawn the direct line so much between what's going on Russia and the inflation. It's more, you know, my my fuel costs are going up please do something about it right uh yeah but certainly it's also uh, going back to what you were talking about right before uh, which was that Mm. uh there's a bit of um fatigue with this i think the nature of the conflict doesn't make it as evident what's going on the first couple months where you saw you know heroic uh, ukrainian defenders in the streets fighting it off. It's the nature of the conflict now because it's so heavily focused on artillery and uh, UAVs and, and it's not as evident. You don't see the heroic figures that are fighting, right? It, it's very yeah. antiseptic to some degree. I think that doesn't really resonate as much in addition to the war fatigue you know that, 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 is, that is going on, especially with, uh, with the prices. I, uh, so it, it's tough to say. Right now, what you see from the West is that the leadership remains fairly committed to seeing this through. Uh, we'll see when it comes close to the fall, especially when the need in Europe to uh, increase its energy stocks to prepare for the winter. How does that play out? That's probably going to be a, uh, it's going, well, it's better to check back then, because right now it's, it, right now there is solidarity. I'm not too sure how long, if it will
1: last so long, or if there will be a war at that time. It's, it's unclear at this time. Richard Samuka, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. Thank you very much. And if you have a loved one with dementia or or Alzheimer's, it is heartbreaking, to say the least, to see them worried or stressed when they get confused or worried and stressed to be left somewhere that they don't necessarily recognize, even if it is their home, whether it's a long term care home or the family home. Sometimes they don't know where they are. I know I would use the little white lies to keep my dad calm when I would leave his long-term care home at Delta View. I'd say, I'll be right back, Dad. I love you. I'll be right back. That was our standard routine. He'd be like, okay. He'd be sitting there watching golf or what have you, and he just wouldn't even, if I said, I'm leaving now, he would get agitated. So I'd use that little white lie. You see where I'm coming from? Therapeutic fibbing is the technique, and it's often recommended by dementia experts. It's tough as a caregiver to wrap your head around it. But it is the practice of uh, agreeing or saying things that are not true to avoid causing someone that distress and to make them feel safe and comforted. It's helpful, really helpful for caregivers uh, to keep that calm waters. Now, there's a Vancouver team of producers and filmmakers who created a video series for Alzheimer's treatment. It's called Therapeutic Fibbing. Here's just a taste of it. Listen to this. How
4: how do you know, like, are they like kids like you?
1: Time for me to go home. Uh now where did I put my jacket?
4: Well not again. Mom, this
5: is your home. No, no I I want to go to my home.
4: Nana, you live right here. Remember?
0: I don't think
5: so.
4: Look around you.
0: See, it's your it's your conch.
1: Yeah. It's quite an impactful and brilliant video. So we're bringing on the producer and the co-writer and co-director, Katrina Katrina Prescott, excuse me, Katrina Prescott, and Jessica Fraser are joining me on the line. Hello there. Hi. Hi. It's good to have you both here. Uh, Having been a caregiver, essential care for my dad through a pandemic, and, and using this therapeutic fibbing technique. Um, When my good friend Sandy Garasino flagged your YouTube video, I I knew we had to have you on. Can one of you tell us, uh, start with the story of of how this came to be for you? Why? uh, Let's go Katrina. Why did you feel that producing this was, uh, was a must do for you?
6: Thanks for having us on. And um, thanks for the question. Um, I have been a caregiver for my mom who actually recently passed. Um, And she's been living with dementia for... She had been living with dementia for about seven or eight years. And it was a really intense, uh, challenging, and special journey. And I met a lot of people along the way that also had challenges and um, hardship and also a lot of joy. And um, we just really don't see that very often and when this opportunity came to make this kind of content it really felt like a good fit for me and I wanted to get this positive messaging that there are moments of joy that there are humor out into the world and therapeutic fibbing was such a great opportunity for me to be able to do that and to work with amazing people that really put their heart and soul to it into it and also have a lot of experience um, with dementia as well.
1: From one caregiver to another, Katrina, I want to give you the virtual hug. My my dad also passed um, uh, last a year ago now, last June. And I do reflect back on some really beautiful moments in a very difficult time and an evil disease, obviously, with Alzheimer's. But mm-hmm. you can find beauty within. And I think that your therapeutic fibbing video really nails it. And Jessica, as co-writer, as co-director, what brought you into this project?
7: Well, I have a a, a similar uh, journey that you and Katrina have in that I have a mom living with dementia. She was diagnosed 10 years ago. And, um, And I love her deeply. She's an extraordinary force and continues to be. And our family navigating how to... To journey with her on 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 this path um, has had many moments of laughter, many moments of joy, and lots of fallible human moments of frustration and upset, and uh, not entirely knowing uh, how to do it perfectly. And so, uh, Katrina and I and Pat Holden, who also had a parent with dementia, um, thought it was an incredible platform to try and help other caregivers through so telling very human centered stories um and and to to share techniques and how to do it how to do it with joy
1: and with this family in the therapeutic fibbing uh video that I'm referencing here the one that I'm referencing is it, you take mom on a road trip Kat- Katrina tell us about the road trip in this video
6: um yeah I love this um video and uh it's you know it's such a great technique to just be able to go with the flow and, and go along with the person and meet them where, uh, where, where their needs are in the moment instead of always pushing back. I think yeah. that uh, this is something that we feel naturally, maybe we, we gravitate towards that naturally. No, this isn't right. We are home. Uh, this is what we're doing. We're here. I need you to come alongside me and remember that you're home. And sometimes just letting go a little bit, going with the flow, um, it makes things so much easier. And maybe you'll add a few more laughs and a little bit of joy and make make uh, caregiving easier because caregiving can be very challenging, as we all know. And absolutely. Yeah, just it's it's an opportunity to find a moment of relief and and actually just meet that person where they are and connect with them. Instead of pushing back, which, you know, I know I did uh, for a long time. <laughs> I was really so pushing did I. back a lot. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, you are speaking to me. You and I have never met before. N- none of us three have met before, but boy, do we have shared experience here. The the, mm-hmm. the want to push back, the want to, to, to look at your loved one and say, what are you talking about? Instead of saying, oh, you're so funny. Right. Exactly,
5: exactly. Yeah,
6: it's it's um, when that letting go does happen, caregiving can really shift and um, grow into more of a relationship that is working both ways. In in my experience,
1: I would agree with that experience And, and meeting meeting the loved one where they are not where you wish they were or where they used to be. And it is, they they—they say about Alzheimer's in particular, but de- all, many forms of dementia, it's many goodbyes, right? Because you have to say goodbye to the person you, you knew them to be. But then also hello to the person that they are in that moment and have some level of gratitude, certainly, as we go through the lesson, why it's so important for caregivers like the three of us to have these conversations because there is, even though it's different for everyone, there is the commonality within this. And, and the fact that you took the character in uh, the therapeutic fibbing YouTube video, you took that mother on a road trip and then brought her back to the home that was the one that she was confused about, only to find that she was happy to be home.
6: Just a small reset can make a huge shift, right? <clears throat> it's these yeah. two-degree shifts. If we can find them within us and and just exactly like meet meet the person where they are, um, it just things can be so much easier. And it's really it can be really hard for caregivers um, to find resources. There's limited resources and um, respite. And we're hoping to use this series to give caregivers and people living with dementia. A moment of respite, a moment of joy um, and maintaining uh, dignity and, and reducing stigma, which is also very prevalent in the dementia world, if you will.
1: And we're talking about stories for caregivers, people who are supporting their loved ones with dementia or Alzheimer's and how therapeutic fibbing is a thing. And also the importance of caregivers coming together and and talking about their experience, the learned experience. I know Ellie Harvey, who is an actor and and an incredible human, helped me when my dad was first diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And she said, if you're interested, I'll give you Caregiver 101. And boy, did I tap into that knowledge throughout my more than a decade of caring for my dad. It helped immensely. I've learned a great deal. Katrina Prescott, also In in a similar situation, having been primary care for her mother, who has now passed, and Jessica Fraser, whose mother is still living with uh, dementia, my guests here to discuss their project about therapeutic fibbing and stories for caregivers uh, on... Uh, YouTube is a great resource. Boy, I didn't know about this until uh, just finding it yesterday, and and we're really speaking about the the video series that the two of you have produced and written and directed together uh, to help caregivers really understand uh, what we've all learned over our journey. Uh, alongside our loved ones with dementia and alzheimer's and just before the break katrina and jessica we were talking about the stigma around this and the shame associated with a diagnosis of dementia or alzheimer's and how that fear of the stigma associated with it can keep people living isolated and really could see the disease progress even more quickly does one of you want to jump in on that
6: um, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, uh, the stigma is very real. Um, a diagnosis of dementia, everybody disappears is often what's said. And, um, people who do get diagnosed with dementia often don't share that news with, um, friends and family and, and hide it. And it, it is very isolating. Um, that's one way it's isolating. It's also isolating, um, If the news is out, um, because people do disappear. My mom, for example, all of her friends disappeared except for one. Um, And she is still my friend now. She texted me this morning. I'm sure she's listening right now. But there is a lot of stigma. She stuck around because her mom also was living with dementia, and she really understood it. But in, in in the climate right now, that stigma... Really, really does isolate people and it and it hurts people, um, and that's something that with stories for caregiver uh, caregivers and therapeutic fibbing, we really want to um, show that there is an opportunity for people to live at home, live in the, live, stay with the family, um, you know, be a part of the community. People living with dementia really do still want to live their lives and serve and be a part of the community and dance and enjoy themselves and um, not just kind of be hidden away and shoved away where we can't see. And I I do think it's starting to shift a little bit. Um, Yeah. And I hope it shifts more.
1: Why do you think it's shifting? What do you think is, is is it conversations like this? Is Is it videos like you two are producing that are, that are helping to shift that narrative? I hope so.
6: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Me too. Um, I <laughs> I feel just it, you know in the last couple of years through COVID and everything, you know, um, caregivers did get a spotlight um, shone on them through COVID, and um, uh, nursing homes, long term care was front and center. So I think that's given us a little bit more of a of a window into the realities of living in long term care and. People living with chronic illness and and caregivers and what what caregivers go through on a day to day basis um, and how little support there can be and so there, there's definitely been a spotlight and I hope that light continues to shine because there's such a great opportunity to make big big shifts and um, we can do that if we all come together and, and make it happen.
1: And now I like to I'd say when we have when we. Ha- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead.
7: Sorry, Jody. I'd love to jump in and say, I think um, culturally and as a society, we're getting better at talking about um, challenges and not hiding from them as well. I think um, our generation, generations that are following are more open about uh, what we're struggling with. And we find that when we talk about it and we talk about it together and we're not hiding away, uh, wonderful things can happen and we can improve um, how people living with dementia uh, are navigating the world, and a whole host of other things as well.
1: Absolutely agree with you on that one. And and what I was going to say there, and and I really, really believe this, is when we have conversations like this, if we reach one person who is, who is fearing being found out or their caregiver who doesn't want to acknowledge the change they're seeing in their loved one, uh, what would you say to that caregiver who knows they're in it but doesn't know how to take that first step towards acknowledging it and reaching out for the help that the caregiver needs?
6: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I um, often talk to people who are in this situation and I, I do a lot of listening (laughs) to be honest. Mm -hmm. And, and every, every journey is unique, right? Everybody's different. Um, but really, and this might sound a little bit corny (laughs) or cheesy, but I really remind people to breathe and to, to stay grounded. This is part of the stigma I think is we just go to fear. You know, we hear the word dementia and whatever's happening for that person, but it's probably fear-based reaction and just coming back one moment at a time One day at a time, you know, one foot in front of the other. Yeah, take a breath. Be here now. What's happening right now.
1: And And you know what? We just helped somebody with that. Just the simplest piece of advice. Katrina, Jessica, thank you. We're going to follow along on your YouTube series and continue and and sign up. I just subscribed to Stories for Caregivers. Uh, I love what you're doing and I appreciate your time so much today. Thank you so much for doing this.
6: Thank Thank you,
1: and thanks for having us on. Boy, oh boy, always a pleasure to welcome Dr. Brian Conway, the Director of Vancouver Infectious Diseases, to the program. Thank you so much for doing this, Dr. Conway.
8: Jody, thank you so much for having me back.
1: I have already received numerous emails with questions for you, so we're going to get right to uh, the phone lines and these emails to help our listener understand about in particular, Dr. Conway, the fourth dose of COVID 19 vaccine and the rollout here in Vancouver, the house or Vancouver, BC in particular, the hows and whys behind uh, it being 70 and over those who are immunocompromised or 50 plus uh, First Nations, Indigenous, Metis, Inuit people in British Columbia eligibility for right now. Let's get the phone lines open for people who have a question for Dr. Brian Conway about COVID-19 vaccination. Certainly top of mind here. The skinny on dose four, rapid testing and much more 604-280-9898 star 9898. A free call on yourself. Make sure your question is ready because we always line up on the phone boards, get as many questions in here as we can, as you Dr. Conway have such a way of answering uh, in a consumable fashion. So I'm going to start with Josie. Josie just sent me an email just minutes ago, literally moments ago. Dear Dr. Conway, at 73 and 74, we are two of the enviable ones approved for our fourth dose. We are immune compromised. We decided to wait a few weeks as my husband was due for prostate surgery, and we thought it was best to wait until he'd recovered from that surgery. And the invite had come shortly before. During the surgery, my husband had a massive heart attack at 80% done. The prostate surgery was ceased and he was rushed to RCH Four stents, put in Returned to hospital in Maple Ridge, five days in ICU, three on a ward. Then he finally came home. Now the question, should he get the fourth dose? Is there any danger to his heart and how long should we wait until we schedule the booster? We have had Pfizer all along. Thank you for your consideration of my question. Sorry, it was so long. I just wanted to give you context.
8: Well, I'm so glad to hear that he's home. That is a harrowing story, and at least for now, it sounds as if the ending is as good as it, uh, as it could be. Uh, the uh, cardiac complications with the vaccines are usually seen in much younger men uh, with repeated doses, admittedly, but younger men. And I think that putting together the immune compromise, now the underlying cardiac disease, the prostate disease, This makes the case even more strongly to get the next shot, the fourth shot, as soon as possible, because then you'd be very well set up to, one, be protected, and two, get potentially the next dose of variant-specific vaccine from a position of strength. So go ahead and get your shot.
1: All right. Great advice from Dr. Brian Conway, the Director of Vancouver Infectious Diseases, good friend of the program here. Your calls, 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call on your cell. We're going to do calls this entire 30 minutes. And we start with Donald in Surrey. Welcome, Donald. What is your question for Dr. Brian Conway?
9: Oh, hello. Can
1: you hear me okay? We can. Welcome.
9: Okay. Uh, Thanks. I have a question with respect. I'm over 70 and actually 71, and I'm due to have my second booster, but I contracted COVID uh, May 24th weekend. Now, how long should I wait? That's first question, and second, if I could, is should I wait for the uh, supposedly new variant or new booster that's coming out in the fall?
8: Uh, short answers, From the bit controversial, the questions you raise, and very important, but controversial. I'd wait a couple more weeks to get your next shot I would get your next shot sooner rather than later. The fact that you got COVID tells me that the previous shots weren't necessarily protecting you as well as they could. So let's get that protection back up. And then, again, you'll be set up for the uh, variant-specific vaccine when it becomes available later on.
1: Okay, I got one more email I want to share with you, and we'll get back to the phone line, 604-280-9898, star 9898, a free call on your cell. Hi, Jody. my wife and I are fully vaccinated. I have just booked her fourth shot, six months after we both received our first booster. Because I do not turn 70 for another six months, I'm not eligible to receive my shot at this time. It seems counterintuitive to not give a shot to someone who wants it, while hearing news the unused vaccine is is expiring. The ruling is both confusing and wasteful of taxpayers' money during these tough times, that from Cliff Dr. Conway.
8: So let's get a plug in for those who have not yet uh, committed to their third shot. We have vaccines couple hundred thousand doses that are about to expire end of July. Uh half of British Columbians who are eligible for their third shot haven't gotten it. So let's address this issue and 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 make sure that we all remain on the same team. Go out and get your third shot or ask someone about it if you have concerns. In terms of the fourth shot, you raise a very important gray area. And my sense is there is the possibility to apply for an exemption in this setting if you're in an environment where others who are over 70 are getting it, if you have underlying medical conditions. Putting all of that together, I think it makes a lot of sense to advocate for someone who's 69 and a half in an environment you describe, to go get their shot. So that's the way I would approach it. If someone showed up and asked me the question on an individual basis.
1: Hopefully that helps. Uh, we are with Dr. Brian Conway, the director of Vancouver Infectious Diseases center. And uh, we are talking all things COVID-19. If you have a question, there are no dumb questions here. I can't tell you how many people are asking a similar set of questions around vaccination, and in particular, the fourth dose rollout here. Bob and Chilliwack, you're up next. Welcome, Bob. Oh, oh it's Rob. Uh, Rob, actually. That's OK. Oh, no Rob. Problem. Sorry.
3: No problem. Hi, Rob. Say I'm, say, I'm just wondering, my mom's in a long-term uh, care home out here in Abbotsford, and I'm just wondering, uh, you still have to be, uh, they're still requiring rapid tests to, to enter, but I was under the impression that there's no more mandate to have to do that. Is that correct? And I have one more quick question after that if
1: if if possible. You can you can stay on, no problem. Yeah. So quickly I I'll answer quickly.
8: Institutions are free to set whatever rules they have that they feel will protect their staff and their employees. Wow. Many medical that's clinics, including ours, still have a mask mandate. So I think uh, it really, uh, uh, I think that's from, that's where that comes from. Okay. Well, that, that's Quick interesting. Up, that it, it's just interesting that a care home can overrule Bonnie Henry, who is the held authority of the province. It doesn't, I don't know. It just doesn't seem right to me, but then my other question is um, why is it
3: that we see on commercials, this and that. Why are they going to vaccinate children so heavily? Because you would know, doctor, the, the death rate for 19 and under is not very high. Um, I'm just wondering why do they want to vaccinate children so 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 much? I'm curious about. that. Thank
8: you. So, so I'll come back to your first question real briefly, is that when Dr. Henry sets out standards, these are the minimum standards that everyone must adhere to. Individual institutions are perfectly um, uh, able and authorized to set their uh, their own rules. And, and I've heard even of some, some homes who, where, where people are invited over. There's some older people, some younger people. They say, well, I want to expand, but I would like everyone to kind of wear a mask as much as possible. That's the spirit in which I sort of see that. Vaccinating children is uh, partly for two two really important reasons. One is... Uh, we're seeing long COVID happen a bit more often, so they don't get sick as much as, as uh, older uh, individuals require hospitalization and potentially succumb to the, to the illness. But uh, you would think that if a two-year-old gets long COVID, uh, this is something that we should try to avoid. Second, children are around older people. If they, get it, if they get it, they could transmit it to susceptible individuals who they themselves might be at risk of being hospitalized that's why it's so important to vaccinate children.
1: Continuing with Dr. Brian Conway, the director of Vancouver Infectious Diseases, taking your calls on all things COVID-19 and in particular Dr. Conway as I mentioned we're really wanting the skinny on dose 4. You've been you've been fielding a lot of questions, people very confused as to why in other jurisdictions the rollout of dose four of the COVID-19 vaccine has been widespread, uh, whereas here in British Columbia, it is reserved for those over the age of 70 and immunocompromised uh, and uh, First Nations, Indigenous peoples as well over the age of 50. I know there are a lot of complexities here, and I really do appreciate both your expertise and you giving up some of your precious time to be with us here today and of course the phone boards reflecting the want for people to tap in to your knowledge we're absolutely jammed here on the phone boards uh we're going to continue down here neil and Surrey, you're up next welcome hello hello neil welcome you're on the air
9: yeah i got a question both my wife and i were in mid-60s we've had three pfizer vaccinations what if, given the choice, what should we pick for our
8: fourth when it does come available to us, like Moderna, or Pfizer? Uh, Moderna for sure. I think that uh, there's a lot of data that the mixing and matching is good. That you'll uh, get a higher a higher uh, amount of the antigen, sort of the stuff that stimulates your immune system, with the Moderna, and your immune system will see it differently than it saw the Pfizer. That's uh, uh, the information we now have suggests that's the way to go.
1: Interesting. I'm a three Pfizer girl, so I'll I'll look for the Moderna. Of course, I'll take whatever anybody wants to give me, but I'll, I'll ask if Moderna is a possibility. Don just sent me an email, very simple, and I get this one a lot. Why the 70-year-old threshold for the second booster? Is it because we lack sufficient supply?
8: No, not at all. Supply is not the issue. We may have to throw out hundreds of thousands of doses in a matter of weeks. There is legitimate scientific debate, and I and many others have called for all of these uh, public health leads. Dr. Henry, or colleagues in other provinces and territories, get together behind closed doors for a day, hash it out, come out with a consensus that all Canadians can live by and that we, uh, we will all apply. And if you still disagree, tell me exactly why, and none of that has occurred. Right now, people are using this as an excuse to not get vaccinated. They say there's, you know, Ontario is this, Quebec is that, BC is, is yet another thing. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. I'm going to sit this one out. And we need to get around that objection. That's unfortunate.
1: Chris in Langley, your patience has paid off. Welcome. You are on the air for Dr. Conway.
9: Hey, thanks, Jody. Uh, yeah, just to parlay off what the doctor just said, uh, uh, it's interesting. Yesterday you had an expert on, I can't remember his name.
1: Uh, Jason yet- Tetro.
9: Yeah, he suggested, uh, um, oddly enough, he suggested if you're up for your next uh, shot, you might just mask up and wait it out for the for the uh, fall because the, the, the new work uh, vaccine is coming out. Uh, this doctor, as well as others, have, have suggested you get it right away and get yourself ready for that shot when it comes out. Um, now, that takes me to my question about, you know, I follow a lot of epidemiologists on Twitter, and they talk about... Uh, this B4 strain and the B5 strain uh, being closer to Delta, like going from Omicron closer to a Delta, like it's it's mutated to the point where possibly they're worried that this new this new improved vaccine isn't actually going to be as effective as they were hoping. Uh, do you know anything about that? And, and it, and it kind of goes to what you're saying, is that there's a no lack of consensus, it seems like, even in the scientific community, as you say, you want to get together and try to figure out the age thing. But there seems to be a, a lack of consensus on whether you should get the, the old shot now before the new one, or as, as your previous uh, guest yesterday said, maybe wait out, be careful, uh, mask up and wait for the new one.
1: To be clear, he did say that for people under the age of 70. I just want to make sure that we're clear on that. Okay. Dr. Conway?
8: So I think there's great consensus on everybody needing a third shot. And uh, a lot of British Columbians haven't made that uh, decision for themselves. And the program must emphasize getting everyone to, uh, to that third shot. As far as the fourth shot, the way I think of it is if you got your third shot more than sort of four-ish, five months ago, uh, then immunity is waning and it's a bit too much of a, of a risk, to my mind, to take to uh, sort of try and wait it out several more months. We know that your protection will have gone down. Significantly, If you're in that three-month range, you may be able to afford to wait another couple of months, three months to fall to get your next shot, especially if your immune system is in pretty good shape. So that's how I try to think through it um, in, in an era that's obviously constantly evolving.
1: We only have about a minute to go here, Dr. Conway, so I'm going to ask this of you. When it comes to however long the wait might be for your fourth dose, obviously getting up to the third dose is the key here. Third is the baseline. But while you're waiting for your fourth dose, we should all be washing hands, masking up, staying home if feeling at all unwell, testing, using rapid tests, correct? Oh, that's exactly right. I've been, yes, yes. Yes, we still live in
8: COVID world. We live in COVID right. world. Wash your hands. If you're sick, go home. If your colleague is sick, send them home. Have a mask in your back pocket. You walk into a small shop and everyone's wearing the mask. The, the one employee, the two customers, put on your mask. So the reason they are masked, that plus getting all the shots you're entitled to, is the best way to live productively in COVID world. Absolutely.
1: Protecting ourselves and protecting our community. Dr. Brian Conway, you're an absolute touchstone. Thank you so much for doing this.
3: Always a pleasure. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: And West Moberly First Nations have negotiated a settlement related to Site C, to the Site C project. Now, there's a partial settlement of West Moberly First Nations civilian claim against BC Hydro Canada and the province. Uh, I want to share the story, but I want it to come from somebody who's involved in this. We're very honored to welcome Chief Roland Wilson of West Moberly First Nations to tell it. Thank you so much for being here today. Good morning. Thank you. So, let's dive in here. BC's Energy Minister, Minister Bruce Ralston called this a partial sett- settlement and a way forward. It's hard not to look back and see just how long and difficult this journey has been for you.
10: <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been a well from the eighties, I guess. Our community has been opposed uh, to to safety, so it's it's been a long run. So,
1: so. Partial settlement. Uh, are you satisfied to this point that it is a way forward now?
10: Well, you know, we had uh, the the nation had come to the understanding that they're not they're not stopping. You know, they're uh, at two billion dollars a few years back when uh, Horgan took office. He uh, put it to the uh Burris Committee, Utilities Commission that for their recommendation and said, whatever they recommended, we would, uh, we would abide uh, by. And if they say, stop the project, we'll stop the project. And they, uh, <laughs> they actually came out and said, yeah, you stop this project. It's not going to have any, uh, bad effect on, on BC. You know, we'll, you'll recover quickly over the $2 billion that was spent. And he stood up and said, well, holy, we spent $2 billion. We can't stop this. That's a, waste of money, you know. Now we're down the road, there after they're up at around five to six billion dollars. And we realize that, you know, they, they wouldn't stop it at two, <laughs> they're not going to stop it at five or six. And there's probably right. not a, a judge in the land that's going to do. I say, yeah, let's, let's shut this project down.
1: <laughs> now, for those of listening, and for those of us who maybe don't understand really the extent to which Site C has impacted your land. Can you paint us a bit of a picture?
10: Well, we've got uh, W.A.C. Bennett, which created the Wilson Reservoir. We also have uh, Peace Canyon Dam, which created the Dinosaur Reservoir. And this is the third installment uh, on, on the river. And it's basically the last functional chunk of river valley that we have in our proximity that we could use. Uh, lots of animals move back and forth through the, through the area you have to understand the importance of the Peace River as a river system in our territory it's the main artery that flows through our through our territory and all the other rivers that are around us flow into the Peace River from one end or the other and uh, you, you know it, it's like the, the Wilson created the issue with the caribou that we have here. Uh, We also created the issue with Malcolm Murphy and all the fish in the Wilson system. And this is an extension of uh, of those historical ongoing impacts that uh, is happening. And when they announced C back when Gordon Campbell's premier, we wanted to sit down with BC, all of us, not just West Folkman, but all of the Treaty 8 nations wanted to sit down with BC And find a way forward where we could save the valley, and and also meet the energy demand that BC was stating it was going to have. That was well over ten years ago, you know. And and the uh, the energy demand that was immediate back then is still not immediate now, you know. And that's BCUC had stated there's no demand for this energy, and if there was, there's a better way to produce that energy, and they pointed to geothermal.
1: We're with West Moberly First Nations Chief, Roland Wilson. Chief Roland Wilson, can you explain to us what is involved in this partial settlement? Are you allowed to speak to the specifics of how, in laying out the the amount of land that is now uh, flooded, uh, is, is there other lands that are being offered? Uh, as well as a piece of the investment in this how does this work well
10: what what we uh, were able to i guess negotiate was pretty much basically what they've offered the other nations um, right. outside of the uh, contracts uh, you know we were we were pretty clear with them that we didn't want to have any part of destroying the valley we will be involved in the restoration and rehabilitation of the valley and the ongoing cleanup of, of the mess that they're making. But uh, we didn't want to be involved in the destruction of the valley. We're not opposing our members from from working. You know, they're safety is a big, big project in, in, I mean, literally in our backyard. So if members want to work there, they can. Uh, it's not going we're not going to say anything about that, but as a nation, we're not going to go and support.
1: Endorsing it. Yeah. Yeah.
10: You know, and this is a settlement. It's not an agreement. We'll never be in agreement on Site C. Uh, Site C has never been a project that it should never seen the light of day. You know, and it was a political decision to move Site C forward, not a demand issue. You know, those are all lies in order to entice people to support the project. And, and, you know, we we wanted to have the discussion with BC about the alternatives package. And they they were not willing to have that discussion. Maybe somewhere down the road they will, but you know, on Site C, it was, it was, a, they made their mind up that they were building Site C. And, you know, they've successfully pushed it far enough that it's at the point of return now, we think.
1: I've only got a minute left here i could I could literally speak with you for half an hour on this at least um when it comes to an awareness and a and a and a heightened sense of truth and reconciliation and the importance around that, do you feel the discussions are getting um better or or are they the same
10: uh, it, 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 when we're faced with say see it's difficult to to talk about that because Horgan's big push was. Uh, you know, uh, reconciliation, accommodation. They're the first first province to legislate the UNDRIP. uh, Free, prior, and informed consent was a big thing with them. And when you look at Site C, it's in violation of all of that stuff. And yet they continue to move forward. You know, so (coughs) they're just words. And and they'll only be words until they're put into action. And reconcile and take see with us. Like what we're doing here is not reconciliation. It's, uh, uh, you know, we've we've kind of just become aware that <laughs> they're just going to run over us and do this. So we we need to do what we can to, uh, you know, save whatever we can out of this this process. So. Yeah.
1: I was hoping for better. I appreciate your honesty and your straightforwardness, and I'm I'm grateful that you told us your story, Chief Roland Wilson. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Have a good day. Smith, now, no surprise during the peak of the pandemic that food banks were extra stressed, right? People were unable to do their jobs, whether it be in hospitality, tourism, uh, really anyone. We were all told to go home and stay home, but definitely those of us who were in some industries where we might not be able to continue to do our work found that we were stretched to the absolute limit. We were already in an affordability crisis prior to a global pandemic. It was a perfect storm. And certainly leaning in and leaning on food banks across British Columbia was part of the equation in keeping families uh, from, from going hungry, frankly. Well, wouldn't you be rather surprised to learn that as inflation has hit, as we've seen, affordability exponentially uh, increase the affordability crisis that is exponentially increased that the Greater Vancouver Food Bank and food banks across BC are are struggling with even greater demand, massive demand. In fact, where people might be pinching the pennies even more when at the grocery store, if you're like me and you would often make sure that you added a little shop to. The food bank bin when you cruise through your local grocer maybe you can't afford to necessarily do that well can we find a way to please help that is the uh, rally cry if you will from the greater vancouver food bank and food banks across bc cynthia bolter the coo of the greater vancouver food bank joins me on the line thanks for doing this cynthia good to talk to you you too as well thanks jody I had the opportunity to be at an event, the Jack's Wine event, actually, uh, at the headquarters in Burnaby. Such an unbelievable program that is ongoing at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. I've been at events that that supported the food bank, but I've never actually stood in the facility, if you will, and seen mm-hmm. how there is a balance between, you know, the the non-perishable food items with the fresher items and how farmers are engaged. And there are many pieces mm-hmm. of this complex puzzle where does the food bank need Jim and Joan public to help? What what do I need to do to help you? Well, the the best
0: way to help I always ask people is to to check with their local food bank. For us at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, there are two ways to help. One is to uh, make a donation of whatever funds you can. We ask for funds and not food. We don't actually take public food drives anymore because the food we were getting was so um, unnutritious and uh, also spoiled and half-eaten, and we have to sort through and pay to get rid of all of that. So our buying power averages two to one, so we can double what you or I could buy at the store. But often, as you just mentioned, you know, when we buy directly from farmers and uh, industry producers, we can stretch that to 5 to 1, 8 to one, ten to 1, depending on the produce that we're buying. And half of the food that we provide to our clients and our community agencies is fresh. So last year it was about 7 million pounds of food we provided into the community, 4 million to individual clients who come to see us, and 3 million to our community agency partners, so so that's why um, the monetary donations are so powerful. And then the other is to volunteer. So we we can't live a day without our volunteers. At our Vancouver distribution center, uh, we're open five days a week. We need twenty five volunteers a day. In Vancouver, in Burnaby, right now we're distributing three days a week, and we need about fifteen volunteers a day. We have two other locations in New West and North Vancouver, and we have office volunteers and warehouse volunteers. So we—that uh, that is actually our largest department. Last year, the full-time equivalent hours amounted to a department of 28 people in terms of uh, full-time hours that volunteers gave us. So it, it really is our largest department at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank.
1: Okay, so we can go to the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, donate even just a few dollars. If everybody Mm -hmm. just gave just a few dollars, it would make a huge difference. But if I want to volunteer, how do I sign up? What's involved with that?
0: So right on our website at foodbank.bc.ca, we have a whole volunteering section and you can sign up right there as an individual or as a group with different shift options, whatever works for you. We're seeing a lot of um, organizations now volunteer as groups of employees, groups of 10 or 15, uh, and we can accommodate groups that big, and they are having an amazing time. Um, they're, yeah. they're doing something really worthwhile, and the quality of food that they're giving out, um, it's it's goosebumpy stuff. I mean, the children's programs, we have the seniors programs, <laughs> And just the regular allotment—it is amazing what what we are providing right now. So it is a really good experience.
1: All right, let's get in on some goosebumpy stuff as Cynthia Bolter explains with the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Go to the website. Give it one more time. Foodbank.bc.ca. Simple as pie, and you might even be handing <laughs> some pie out. No, healthy, healthy foods, healthy foods. Thank you so much for your time today, Cynthia. I, I look forward to uh, being in that well-oiled machine and, and garnering my own goosebumps by giving back to the community by way of helping the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Thank you so much. Smith, time to bring in the man who's wearing many hats. He's not just the content producer for this program, but he's my good friend and contributor. Eric Chapman is here. Hello, Eric.
4: Hello. How much... Misinformation is out there, Jody Vance. Do you think we'll ever find out? Yes. Yeah. Good answer. There is a lot. (laughs) But how it is reported, well, basically, it's reported by the companies that do the reporting themselves. So there's a public trust thing. Can we rely on the data we're getting about misinformation from these companies? Well, SFU just got a ton of money and a grant to do some research into this, into misinformation, and how it's all reported and gathered. And it, it gets kind of meta and deep here, Vancey Pants, but everyone can get involved in it as well. I talked to Canada Research Chair in New Media in the School of Communications at SFU, Wendy Chun, and she told me more, more about what they're up to.
5: Yeah, and one part of our project is going to be a free public night school in Vancouver, which will run over 30 days, which will give um, people access to these tools and give them also um, a way to have their... Their opinions and their lives matter in terms of how we create, or think about, or imagine technologies and our data-filled world.
4: Yeah. So tell me about this. You guys received, uh, I believe it was a grant, a, a large grant. If you if you need to spend that, if you need a researcher that you know you need to pay a lot, I could take some of that. But what? Tell me about this. What is happening? What, what's the full scope of this thing?
5: This is a massive thing. Just, we received a very generous grant from the Mellon Foundation, um, uh, 6.2 million Canadian. Um, and no, it's not going towards my salary. So,
4: I know, um, I know. I just, is- I just have to ask, you know. If it's out there, I just have to ask. That's all.
5: <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting how people imagine um, this, this offering. But no, it's actually going to fund graduate students Um, postdocs, young researchers, um, and across uh, six different institutions, Um, so a lot for SFU, but also um, uh, our partners, the University of Southern California, Anderson College, um, the Social Science Research Council that's based in the U.S., um, the University of Canterbury, which is in New Zealand, and York University. um, so it's a, it's a wide, um, and it's a really a huge project that has four different parts to it, some of which will be more interesting to um, people inside of academia, and some more outside. So part of it, again, is to create these new methods for understanding how social media affects our life without surveilling users. Um, so how can we understand the kinds of rich interactions that happen? And how can we come up with research methodologies that respect users' privacy and their lives as they try to understand this impact. So we're bringing together qualitative and quantitative research. Um, Another part of the project says, look, part of the problem with machine learning programs is that they don't, when they say they predict the future, they don't predict the future. What they actually do is repeat the past. Um, So what happens when a program is trained, it's trained on past data, right? So this is how it builds its model. But then when it's validated as true, what happens is it's validated against a subset of that past data that's been hidden. So what it really does is just predict and repeat the past rather than the future. And this is a real problem because rather than learning from past mistakes, we'll repeat them. And this will be what truth is. Um, But this doesn't have to be the way it is with these programs. So think of global climate change um, programs. What they do is they give you the most probable future based on the past, not so we'll accept it, not so we'll say, okay, this is the way the world has to be, but in order to say, no, we need to act in order to have a different future. So how can we think through the ways these algorithms are being used right now, use them against the grain to think um, through the problems um, we have and how they've been formed, and also think with larger clips about how we can solve some of these problems that these algorithms really are trying to deal with. Um, like, uh, and then the third part, which is um, more based in community-engaged co-creation, has the free public night school, we have performances, we have data exhibitions, there's a community-led data center in New Zealand that's being developed. Um, There's workshops for producing games um, that's uh, designed for youth in Appalachia, um, which is one of the uh, poorest areas of the United States. Um, And we have projects to prevent um, radicalization online um, by producing um, media um, in TikTok and YouTube along those very lines in which a lot of youth are being radicalized. Um, And then we also have a bunch of courses that we're developing and working with people around the world to develop as well as some research development workshops and dissertation fellowships.
4: You're getting philosophical with the past is the prediction of the future and the future for repeat. Like this is, this is really, really interesting research and, and the radicalization. I'm I'm glad you brought that up.
5: Well, it's also to to prevent certain things from happening. Because yeah. If you think of like even the, the mass murder, you know, Alex in, um, Toronto and the radicalization of insults. Right? If you can instead, uh, if you can instead, along those very lines that people get sucked into this kind of hatred, um, foster different kinds of conversations uh, and media and different ways of understanding the world, then you're doing. Um, th- then you're empowering people and and making our democracy stronger.
4: There you go. So instead of Google algorithms to gathering their data information, a more it sounds like a less invasive way to gather data as well with the community involvement and engaging things like that. Again, that's a study happening at SFU. They got a grant, and that was uh, Wendy Chun, the research chair in New Media at the School of Communications. But uh, that was very interesting, Jody, how she got into, you know, we're, we're learning about the past. And how do we learn from it if we just keep creating those same mistakes by following these same algorithms that we, we constantly follow that are, that are out there? So designing new ones. I think this would be really interesting to, to track down the misinformation. And again, with those radical, I'm going to say, right, average, you know, there's a demographic that they fit. Looking instead of what the past, you know, getting a gauge of what the future could be. I mean, that seems incredibly useful for many situations.
1: No question. And we're going to keep talking about this. Actually, you and I both know this as we've got uh, Jesse Miller joining us tomorrow off the top of the show because of Mm -hmm. watching some of the radicalization of people that we know and love or appreciate or have had some contact with. For me, it's Theo Fleury, right? Like I have interviewed Theo Fleury. I covered him as a sports broadcaster. I've sat with him. On breakfast television, and spoken about his his struggles with uh, abuse and and yes. how he has become a champion of such things. Go to his Twitter feed now, and you're like, what happened to Theo? And it's and Jamie Salay, Olympic gold medalist figure skater, right in in Salt Lake City. Salay and Pelche, remember she's married to Craig yeah. Simpson. Jamie Salay and Theo Fleury uh, are are talking about doing. A project together. There's a video that is out. We'll get into it deeper, uh, more deeply, I should say, uh, tomorrow on the show. But it is, it is a case study uh, for people like Wendy to look at and say, how did this happen? Like, free thinkers, and, and literally, they, they, they talk about being free thinkers, but if you don't agree with their thinking, <laughs> you're wrong. And it's like, well, how is that free thinking? Where is the dialogue? Where is the conversation? Where is the communication? How did we get here? And it's misinformation and disinformation, right? Yeah, totally, 100%.
4: And you know, you you make an interesting point there, uh, Vancy Pants. I would be interested... To see, because we always question how how it is it different up here with the with the right or not the right the the conspiracy influence sorry. I, they're they're both very different things. I don't want to clarify that before I get emails. I realize what I just said there. The conspiracy thing, you know, like it, it is it does it have legs here? And this could be sort of a, a ground zero for watching. Will this pick up speed? Because I've had this conversation before, and and, and intelligence has been mentioned um, as a part of this, and I don't know if it is, but. I feel like that becomes part of the conversation when we talk about our ability up north here to to deal with these situations and, and handle these, you know, people that have just, you know, gone the the
1: wrong way. They're lost. It feels like it, it there must be a balance, you know, and wanting the likes of Daniel Dale, one of our uh, this country's. Yeah fact checkers was actually stolen from us. No, he got it. He is working so hard to fact check the misinformation and disinformation south of the border. When you look at people who are literally yelling at the top of their lungs freedom and putting our Canadian flag upside down, who are saying that vaccines are, are whatever, fill in the blank on whatever the conspiracy theory might be. And then you look at the COVID-19 vaccination rates in Canada 32,506,891 Canadians. 85% of Canadians have at least one dose. At least one dose. Fully vaccinated over the age of five? 86% of Canadians. So, I mean, at the very outside, the radical piece is very small, but they are so loud and, and really pulling in people who are maybe just a little bit unnerved, Or afraid, which is understandable. So painting everybody with these broad strokes just is not helpful to anyone. So if you are tuned in right now thinking, that's me, I feel so scared and I'm leaning in on conspiracy theories, make sure you're tuned into the Mike Smith Show at noon tomorrow we will have Jesse Miller on with us then. And Eric, I appreciate you bringing Wendy's uh, perspective to the table here. Counting down to Canada Day for many... Uh, during the show, we have had a few unsolicited buzz lines, actually, from callers offering their thoughts about Canada Day celebrations. Certainly, there are discussions surrounding the colonial nature of Canada Day for many. Liberal MLA for Skeena, Ellis Ross, has been a great moderate voice on Canada Day celebrations in a time of awakening and truth and reconciliation. Ellis Ross joins me now on the line. Thank you so much for doing this. Welcome.
11: Thank you very much.
1: I believe you and I were talking about this. Last year at this time, and uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you back on, because we did receive a buzzline phone call yesterday from somebody saying, you know, basically get over it. We're going to celebrate Canada Day, and I know there are many on uh, the other side of that debate saying, hey, it's a colonial holiday. This is not time for celebration for First Nations, Indigenous, Métis, and Inuit people in Canada. Uh, what is your perspective on the Canada Day celebrations? Uh, that are before us uh, in 2022?
11: Well, like I mentioned last year, my family, uh, both my mom and my dad, who both went to residential school, looked forward to Canada Day. They looked forward to BC Day. And Aboriginals, just like everybody else, like it or not, we enjoy the services that Canada and BC provides, whether we're talking about hospitals, schools, uh, you name it, the highways, everything, cell phones, cars, buses, we enjoy it all. So I this colonialism uh, divisive talk is going too far it's dividing people it's not bringing us together
1: so in that and i and it does give me it gives me chills to to really th- think through finding middle ground on what has been without question horrifying impacts of colonial history on uh indigenous peoples and first nations peoples in canada and how uh how there there is much anger your history share once again with our with our listener if you might your journey to becoming a liberal MLA for Skeena how did how what's Ellis Ross's historical piece uh, to becoming literally a leader
11: well I, I was like everybody else I, I believe the uh, the false political narrative that somehow government and uh, the, the white man was responsible for the issues that we face today that's not entirely true and that's what I found out back in 2003, 2004. In fact, if anything, uh, what I understood, that the history is bad. Uh, not all of it, of course. I mean, you got to remember, aboriginals back in the old days embraced steel, glass beads, gasoline boats, uh, highways, their own houses, for instance. It's not all bad. But you can't change history. You just can't yeah. do it. The, the most you can hope for is actually build a better life for today and a better life for tomorrow. And by the way, I still believe that Aboriginals today are stuck in limbo. They're stuck between the political correctness of what happened in the past and what they should be doing to build their house, their, their life in the future. So we don't do them any service by by playing this political narrative that actually puts them in even greater limbo than they already are.
1: And you and I have talked at great length about the opportunity for Aboriginal people. I'll use the term that you use. Aboriginal people wanting to take ownership of the want and ability to work their land, to work the land and, and find gainful employment and, and, uh, what's the right term? Futuristic or future motivated opportunity, uh, that has to this point in history been very difficult to to grab a hold of is there better opportunity today have we learned something over these last uh two years maybe even just a year of of the awakening around the unmarked graves at residential schools and you know the pope on his way to canada to apologize uh next month and and are we seeing a movement that might Uh, step toward the healing that will be needed for the anger to subside on a larger scale?
11: Well, hopefully, but, but I think the real key here to the, the the residential graves or the findings there, I think the only way we can actually hope for any type of resolution to that is talk about repatriation. Uh, Right. Exume, exhume those graves, identify the remains and get them back to the communities they came from. But by the way, I keep telling British Columbians, you did a great job on reconciliation starting in 2004. You did a great job. And and unfortunately, it all ended in 2017. But if you want to see an example of true reconciliation that relieves the social issues that Aboriginals are facing today, come to Kitimat and come see the dramatic change. And I, I don't believe in any type of political discussion around reconciliation unless you're addressing poverty, suicide, children going to government care. Aboriginals going into prison. I don't believe in any of that garbage, and that's what it is. It's garbage. It's just political people trying to get vote votes. That's all they're doing. And that word reconciliation has been distorted so much for political purpose. It yeah. actually, I just turn a, I just turn a blind eye to it now.
1: We're with Ellis Ross, who is BC Liberal MLA for Skeena. And um, whenever we speak of residential schools and the trauma, the generational trauma associated with it, we'd like to put out the um, the crisis line number, which I'll do right now. If this is triggering for anyone listening right now, the number to call for residential school survivors and families 1-800-721-0066 or 1-866-925-4419. Going back to Canada Day with you, Ellis, if somebody is getting into a debate, let's say there's a person who feels that Canada Day is important, it is the celebration of our country, and speaking with somebody who feels that Canada Day it represents um, all the things that repress Aboriginal people, First Nations, Indigenous, Métis, Inuit people in Canada, where might they find the middle ground to so that that discussion doesn't escalate unnecessarily?
11: Go back to, to one of the judges that actually ruled an Aboriginal rights title in the first place. That's where I got the definition of reconciliation. And if you're talking about, you know, wiping out Canadian history or wiping out everything that people have enjoyed in Canada for the last 100 years or so, then then what else have you got left? You got nothing. I mean, yeah. all I've really said is that if you, wanna, if you want a true history, then add to the history. Don't wipe it out. Don't erase it. I mean, there's not one country in the world that I've seen that has a perfect history. We got all our bumps. We got all our warts. Embrace it, but also embrace the fact that we've made tremendous progress in the last 18 years towards reconciliation. We should actually get back to that for the sake of uh, Aboriginals, but also for the sake of Canadians. Because let's face it, I've been all around BC, I've been all over the world, and I keep coming back to the idea that Canada is a great place to live. Let's stop beating ourselves up so much. Let's fix the issues that we have, but let's acknowledge we got it so much better than so many other people around the world.
1: I can't think of a better way to leave it. Ellis Ross, thank you for your time today.
11: Not a problem. Thank you very much.